Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. So happy to be here with you. We have a wonderful show for you. So excited to be talking to Chase Boudin, who was the DA of San Francisco. Let's just bring in our guest. Hello, Chase. Hey, Katie. Good to see you. How are you? Good. You? Doing great and happy to be back on the show. Yes, of course. I'd be happier, of course, if you were still the DA of San Francisco. I'm a little biased. Can you go over some of the things that you were able to achieve? You came into office in 2020. There was a recall that we're going to get into. And yet in that short time, what were you able to achieve with your kind of reform-minded approach to criminal justice? Absolutely. You know, um, I campaigned on a platform that was you know, really based on three fundamental premises. The first one is that incarceration should not be the primary response to social problems. We need to invest in alternatives to incarceration that make our community safer in the long run. The second um, commitment was that we would take some of the savings from decarceration and that we would invest historically in expanding victim services. Um, too often, victims are treated as nothing more than a piece of evidence in our criminal legal system. Um, and in San Francisco, we uh, wanted to prioritize actually investing in helping victims and survivors of crime to heal. And the third thing was that we were going to take on the powers that be and enforce laws equally. Uh, we didn't care if you were uniformed to work, if you were a corrupt politician in City Hall, if you were a billionaire in your boardroom. If you're committing a crime, we were going to come after you. Um, and we did all those things. We, we followed up and we followed through in um, really a very short period of time and one that was largely defined by the COVID pandemic. I took office just two months before the city shut down and then had to do most of my job over Zoom. But we, we managed to deliver. We reduced the number of juveniles in our city's uh, juvenile detention center by about 70%. We reduced the number of adults in our county jail by about 40%. We reduced the number of people in state prison out of San Francisco County by more than 25% in just a two and a half year period. Um, and we did it through things like ending money bail, through expanding diversion programs like our primary caregiver diversion, um, and through partnering with our reentry uh, partners and with our medical community during the COVID pandemic. Um, and as promised, we invested savings in expanding victim services. Dramatic increase in the number of bilingual victim advocates. Um, when I took office, we had one Chinese speaker for the entire Chinese-speaking community in San Francisco. We increased that by over 500%, including increasing, uh, excuse me, appointing the first ever Chinese-speaking director of our victim services division. Uh, we also partnered with Airbnb and with uh, other uh, government and non-governmental agencies to create housing opportunities for survivors of domestic violence during the pandemic. Um, we called out a really horrific practice of the San Francisco Police Department. Uh, they were storing DNA of rape survivors and sexual assault survivors and taking their DNA from rape kits and not using it exclusively for the purpose that it was gathered for to, to investigate the rape or the sexual assault, 
But instead, they were building a secret database of DNA profiles and, and using those DNA profiles to investigate totally unrelated crimes. Years later, uh, we called out that practice and thankfully we ended it, um, both with the resolution at the Board of Supervisors and more recently, a state law that passed the Senate unanimously uh, in the state Senate that would prohibit any local law enforcement agency from gathering the DNA of survivors of crime, victims of crime uh, in, in a secret database. Um, I could go on, but uh, let me also mention briefly some of the areas in which we did work to take on powerful entrenched interests, folks who really don't believe in accountability uh, unless it's for black and brown working people, but folks who are used to being able to violate the law and, and get away with it, including killing um, with, with no consequences. We filed the first ever homicide case against an on-duty San Francisco police department officer who shot and killed an unarmed black man. Uh, we also filed the second such case. We took the first ever excessive force case of a police department officer defendant to trial in front of a San Francisco jury. Um, and we also created a worker protection unit, a unit designed to investigate and prosecute things like wage theft, which we know are massive problems. Um, and we filed a whole slew of political corruption cases because we know that City Hall, uh, sadly, is in the midst of a major ongoing corruption scandal that is calling into question the legitimacy of our local government. Let me stop there, Katie, but uh, that's just a few of the highlights of, of what I'm proud of and what we accomplished in my two and a half years in office. Can you talk more about the cases where you went after police officers and also on the other end of the spectrum about how you helped free an innocent man? Yeah, our Innocence Commission, definitely something I'm super proud of. I'll come to that. Um, thanks for flagging. You know, the, the first case we filed against a San Francisco Police Department officer was an officer by the name of Samayoa who shot and killed an unarmed black man named Keita O'Neill. And Keita O'Neill was being pursued by police on suspicion of stealing a car, carjacking. Um, he was fleeing and had crashed his car and abandoned it and was running on foot. And he was running, because he was in a dead end, he was running back towards where a whole line of police cars had followed him and had, had pulled up right behind him. He had nowhere to go. There was a whole line of police cars. And as he ran by the first car, the lead pursuit car that had already come to a stop. This officer, only a few days out of the academy, pulled his gun and in violation of clear department protocol, shot his gun through the car window. As Mr. O'Neill ran by the car, one bullet through his neck and into his head, killed him. Uh, Mr. O'Neill was unarmed. He was not in a position to escape. Nobody was, in a, you know, nobody was at risk of getting hurt. Uh, in that situation, the officer was behind a closed, locked door with a window up and shot through the window. Um, it was such a clear violation of office protocol that he was actually fired by the department. And yet it took three plus years from the time that happened to the time I got uh, into office and hired a team of folks who took seriously the duty to hold police accountable and to enforce laws equally before that case was filed. Our Innocence Commission was a creation of my administration. And it, it comes from a recognition that district attorney's offices have to do justice going forward, not just, uh, not just going forward, but also looking backwards. If we recognize and if we accept that the way things were done five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 
don't live up to our standards, whether in terms of what the sentencing norms are, what the laws are, but also our understanding of forensic science, of things like the junk science that go into bite mark forensics or the ways in which cross-racial identification uh, can lead to misidentification of people. All of those emerging areas of science and changing areas of law need to be applied retroactively. If you recognize that there's a possibility that there's somebody sitting in state prison who is innocent, who was convicted of a crime they didn't commit, then prosecutors have an obligation both to do justice and also to ensure that the public has trust in the integrity of the justice system going forward. So we created an independent innocence commission. It was chaired by a a law school professor in San Francisco. It had a uh, array of experts, forensic psychologists, expert uh, defense lawyers, retired judges who volunteered to serve on the commission. And when there was a credible claim of innocence, rather than having folks in my office review that case, uh, because of all the inherent conflicts of interest that come up when you're reviewing a case that maybe your manager or predecessor in the office um, tried or litigated, we had this outside expert uh, commission, and they reported directly to me, and they found a case where someone had been in prison for more than 30 years for a murder that, based on follow-up uh, research and additional evidence, it became pretty clear he did not commit. Um, once they presented me with their findings, uh, I went to the court, told the court we believe this man was innocent and should be released, and he was, in fact, released. Do you think, Chesa, that you did something in particular that galvanized forces against you? Was there a particular policy that you pursued, a particular thing you said or did? Or was it just more your approach in general and who you are that made the recall happen? You know, I think it was a few things. Um, you know, definitely it was convenient for a city hall mired in, in, in political corruption scandals. I mean, just to be clear, in my first year and a half in office, at least six department heads were either indicted by the feds or resigned because of their connections to this uh, spiraling corruption investigation. All people closely connected to the mayor. So folks like the mayor were very happy to have a scapegoat for uh, distracting people in San Francisco, both from the corruption and from the real failures and shortcomings of the establishment of the so-called city family, folks who've been in office uh, for years and years and failed to address longstanding problems like homelessness or the public health crisis that plays out on our streets. Um, So, you know, that was definitely part of it. Um, You know, I think the other part of it is we actually followed through on our campaign promises and folks are so used to politicians talking a big game and then kind of doing the same old thing when they get into office. And I wasn't going to do that. I was going to end cash bail. I was going to stop using racist status enhancements to double and triple sentences. I was going to actually file criminal cases against police officers who unlawfully take lives or use excessive force. I was going to file lawsuits against companies that systematically steal from their employees. I was going to investigate political corruption. And we did all those things. And it made some very powerful people angry. uh, And certainly, encourage them to spend, I think in the end, it was about $9 million in attack ads. I want to be clear about how this works. There's no limit to how much you can donate to a recall in San Francisco. And it's very easy to hide the true 
source of those funds. Uh, many of them were contributions made in the form of stock so that the donors could avoid paying capital gains and, and also help to hide their true identity. Um, and the other thing that's, that's important to note about this recall is I wasn't running against anybody. There was no candidate on the ballot other than me. There was no alternative platform or vision or policy agenda. In fact, the folks funding the recall were so dishonest that they actually told voters that they supported criminal justice reform. They just wanted it done differently. So this wasn't a case like in Philadelphia or Chicago, where you have a candidate who's running as a reform candidate and a candidate who's running against them as a status quo candidate. Here, there was, there was no actual race. There was no competition for ideas. There was just a slush fund of $9 million, more than has ever been spent in any election in San Francisco history in attack ads, with no affirmative agenda or message or solutions to real problems, just pointing fingers and playing the blame game. So after the recall, did you consider running again? Because that was a possibility, correct? Definitely. Um, there's an election this November. Um, it, early ballots drop almost exactly a month from today for vote by mail. And it is an election to decide who will finish the term that I was elected to um, back in 2019. The mayor appointed uh, my replacement, and she is now the uh, interim DA until the election. She's running for DA, and I did certainly consider running against her, partly because she's so dishonest. She doesn't actually even live in San Francisco. She established residency here as a technical matter uh, around the time she joined the recall, claimed to be a volunteer for the recall. We find out after she's appointed by the mayor, she was getting paid by the same Republican billionaire who bankrolled the recall um, through a nonprofit. And, um, you know, so it's a level of dishonesty and lack of integrity that is just really offensive and has no place in an office charged with administering justice and making life and death decisions about prosecuting crimes and imposing sentences. Um, I did think about it and I decided not to do it for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, my family. I had an unbelievably intense couple of years being in office, global pandemic, um, you know, taking office for the first time ever right at the start of the pandemic was was challenging enough. Trying to reform a badly dysfunctional and, and bureaucratic criminal legal system uh, was really a, a challenge of a lifetime, not of a single year or two. And if all that weren't enough, um, my son was born in late 2021. My father was released from prison after 40 years, just two months later. And my mother who'd been battling cancer for many years, died just a few months after that. Condolences, by the way. Thank you. Um, thank you, Katie. And the, and the memorial is actually this Saturday in New York City. You know, if folks want information or want to attend, you can find the link to RSVP uh, in my, uh, on my Facebook page or in my Instagram um, bio. Um, but, you know, dealing with planning my mom's memorial, dealing with helping my dad adjust to life after 40 years in prison, dealing with, you know, making sure I'm present for my son's first word and first steps. He just had his first birthday a couple of days ago. Um, and also being really intentional about my role as a husband and making sure that my relationship with my wife is, is a two-way street and that I support her career as much as she's supported my career over the years meant that turning around and, and running another campaign just to win back the four-year term that I was already elected to 
just wasn't wasn't realistic. I had to put my family first. We're going to talk more about your parents and your mom in particular. But before we do that, I just wanted to talk more about the recall. And also, we have a video of the woman who replaced you making some interesting statements. Maybe we can play this video and then you can put into context what she's talking about. Understand, right, why people may be concerned or may have been concerned. Um, I only did what was legal. I had a separate role um, for a separate organization that was a job. And I was a volunteer on the campaign. They were two separate things. One had no influence on the other. Um, in hindsight, I wish, you know, maybe that that it, I think now, um, having not been a politician before, but being in a political role now, um, it would have been beneficial, I think, to to disclose that sooner just for the sake of transparency. Um, but from a legal standpoint, I did nothing wrong or illegal. And so um, I think that this is all being used, quite frankly, as a distraction from the actual work that's being done to keep San Francisco safer right now. So what's your response to that? Well, I mean, it's just it's just patently. It's uh, I don't know if we're allowed to use this language, but it's BS. You know, I mean, it's just bullshit. Um, you, you don't you don't uh, quit your job. Say you're a volunteer for a campaign sign an apartment for a luxury lease in a luxury apartment in San Francisco. First time she ever voted in the city was the beginning of 2022, right? If you're not in it for politics. Um, but she held herself out and was held out by the recall campaign as a volunteer. When in fact, the same billionaire backer of the recall, the biggest individual donor, William Oberndorf, who's given Mitch McConnell more than $6 million to help take control of the Senate, was paying her through a nonprofit that has the same name, the same lawyer, the same address, and the same board chair to be a front person for the recall. It's not, you're not volunteering when you get paid, I think it was $153,000 over a six-month period. That's good volunteer work if you can get it. To say that it's a distraction, it goes to the heart of whether or not she can be trusted by voters in San Francisco. It goes to the heart of whether or not the recall was, as we were saying from the beginning, a con. All the people who were being held out as volunteer activists and people who were protesting events that we would put on, all these people, it turns out, were getting paid through a nonprofit. Now, what's so problematic about that? There's a few things. First of all, nonprofits are not allowed to engage in direct partisan advocacy. So they're violating the terms of their IRS and state law equivalent uh, 501c3 status. That means their donors are getting a tax benefit to which they're not entitled. That's illegal. Second thing that's problematic about it is campaigns under California law are required to disclose not just direct contributions, but also in-kind contributions. That means if somebody's getting paid so that they can spend their time working on a campaign, the campaign committee has to disclose that in-kind contribution. No such disclosure was made in this case. The third thing that's really problematic about it is that it's a violation of local and state ethical rules. For example, the California State Bar uh, has an ethical code of conduct. And that ethical code of conduct requires that attorneys not engage in conduct that involves dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or even reckless misrepresentation. She held herself out as a volunteer for the recall, said she quit her job at a, at a personal sacrifice, when in reality, she got a pay raise and was being paid to campaign in support of the recall. It's dishonest, it's unethical, and it does not reflect well on 
the integrity of the convictions that her office is going to secure. I want to ask you more about who was behind the recall, but I also want to uh, engage some of the questions that we're getting from chat. I'm just going to read out this question because I want you to respond to it. Chase a loss because letting everyone out of jail causes more crimes. It's directly correlated and the left needs to learn it and that you're not racist for thinking it. Well, I don't think it's necessarily racist to think it, but it's uh, really disconnected from empirical evidence. Um, you know, and it, it certainly is part of what has exacerbated racial disparities in the criminal legal system. But, you know, putting aside race for a minute, let's just look at the data and the facts. During the time I was in office, it was about two and a half years, there were 34,000 fewer reported crimes in San Francisco, according to police data, than in the exact same number of days prior to my administration. That means that there was a 20% decline in crime. Both violent and property crime fell by approximately 20% during the two and a half years I was in office. What we proved was, in fact, the direct opposite of what that question suggests. We proved that you can safely decarcerate and that you can decarcerate in a way that creates a virtuous cycle. There is massive amounts of research showing that incarcerating people for low-level, nonviolent crimes actually is criminogenic. In other words, it actually creates future crime. And that finding alternatives, things that address root causes of crime, things like mental health treatment, like um, parental diversion, a program that I created in San Francisco, those kinds of programs that address people's real life needs rather than imposing short, arbitrary periods of incarceration are far more effective at preventing crime. And that's exactly why we saw, uh, one of the reasons why we saw a 20% decline in crime during my administration. And another critique I wanted to share with you for you to respond to is the claim someone wrote, the San Francisco Asian community, and the person says, I'm not Asian, was a huge driver of the recall, primarily because violent crime against them rose so much. Chase and his office had little empathy for them. What's your response to that? Let me just say, we had more empathy. It was it was a primary uh uh, focus of my administration to find ways to support our Chinese and our Asian community. First of all, it's one of the biggest ethnic groups and language groups in San Francisco. Second of all, uh, we were watching with horror as crimes against and targeting Asian Americans uh, spread across the country. This is not a result of my policies or criminal justice reforms. This is something that was a direct result of white supremacy and Donald Trump encouraging and fanning the flames of anti-Asian sentiment as a scapegoat for the coronavirus and the COVID pandemic. Uh, we did more for the Chinese community in San Francisco during my two and a half years than any district attorney in the history of San Francisco in terms of increasing language access, increasing programming, being more present, providing resources and partnerships. And if you look at the endorsements that we had opposing the recall, it showed. Uh, I was proud to receive the endorsement against the recall of San Francisco, in fact, the Bay Area's largest Chinese language media outlet, Tsingtao Daily. I was also proud to receive the endorsement of both Chinese American members of our board of supervisors, of the also the member of our board of supervisors who represents Chinatown, who happens to not be Chinese American, uh, as well as of our uh, Chinese American democratic clubs and groups like the Chinese Progressive Association, the Rose Pack Democratic Club, um, our Chinese Community Tenants Association. We had the endorsements of all of the leadership, retired judges, uh, all of the leadership of the Chinese community that was paying attention to the work we were actually doing on the ground and not being swayed by the fear mongering 
and the the scare headlines that came to dominate uh, local news coverage. And so who were the people behind the recall? Well, the biggest donor was this guy I mentioned, William Oberndorf. Uh, he was the biggest individual donor by far. We still don't know the full extent of his contributions because so much money was funneled illegally through his nonprofit that has the same name, the same address, the same lawyer uh, as the political committee that was officially funding the recall. Um, Bill Oberndorf is a San Francisco resident and calls himself a philanthropist. He um, is a major contributor to Republican causes. He has been a close friend and ally of Mitch McConnell. Um, He's given well over $6 million to Mitch McConnell. And let's look at what that agenda is about. It's about packing the Supreme Court, attacking voting rights, undermining gun control, of course, uh, depriving women of the right to control their own bodies. This is not a progressive agenda. It is not a anti-racist agenda. It is not a San Francisco agenda. Um, It is a billionaire agenda. It does not reflect or represent our values. But he's the one who was paying Brooke Jenkins for the six months she was leading the recall effort. He's the one who contributed personally that we know of more than $650,000 to the recall to help get it on the ballot, to help pay for TV ads, spreading lies. Um, And, you know, it's folks like him who were really engaging in the same kinds of disinformation tactics that Republicans at the national level have mastered, uh, who, who bankrolled this recall and made it succeed. And what did he say to you during a meeting about sanctuary cities? You know, it's funny, uh, it was a long time ago, Katie, but uh, when I was, you know, first a candidate for office in 2019, and I was going around town and introducing myself to people who I didn't know, but who were active in politics and political spending, someone introduced us. And I went and I met with him and his wife, and his wife was really lovely, friendly, warm person. Um, But within minutes of me sitting down at their table, he was red-faced and frothing at the mouth. I, I really had never experienced anything like it. And The thing that put him over the top was he wanted me to commit to oppose sanctuary city. Sanctuary city is a policy that protects immigrants, our strong, proud, diverse immigrant communities in San Francisco from um, fear that local government is going to hand them over to ICE or cooperate with ICE. It's a really critical policy at the local level because here's the thing. Imagine being a police officer or a prosecutor, as I was, and trying to get a victim of domestic violence who's not a citizen and whose abuser is not a citizen to come forward and cooperate and tell you what happened or to come testify in court. Imagine the fear that they feel that they could, through their cooperation with law enforcement, have their information handed over to federal immigration authorities or that the person who abused them as as a consequence might get deported. It means local communities are deprived of the benefit of local government. It means that we are all less safe as a result because law enforcement can't get people who are victims to come forward, can't get people who are accused of crimes to show up to court because they're scared, not of facing trial for the charges they're accused of, not of facing the person that they're accusing of having harmed them, but they're scared of immigration authorities. They're scared of being deported. I wanted, as chief law enforcement officer, I wanted the same thing that San Francisco government has said as a matter of policy it wants for all of our immigrant communities, for them to feel safe, for them to have the full benefit of local services, for them to be able to come forward and cooperate with local authorities where necessary to promote public safety. And I made that clear to him. 
And it drove him over the edge. He couldn't handle it. He wants people who get arrested in San Francisco to be deported. Full stop. Right. Which again, so much, what's so interesting about this discussion and this issue is that so many of the things that people think are about public safety are, have the opposite effect of what they're saying. Like lock them up, doesn't keep people safer. Uh, kick out, uh, you know, have heart draconian rules for people who are undocumented, which obviously those people don't use the word undocumented for people who are undocumented. They have other words. But even if you don't have empathy, which is something that obviously guides you, Chesa, I guides me. But the irony is that even people who don't have empathy, who just care about public safety for themselves and their neighbors, it's actually short-sighted and myopic. Absolutely right. And look, I mean, you want to talk about empathy. I was meeting with the survivors of sexual assault. I was meeting with families of homicide victims almost every day in office. I went to the hospital to visit uh, monolingual Chinese uh, survivors of a brutal stabbing attack. I went to court myself to advocate in those cases. Um, so the, the, the real pain and suffering of people harmed by crime was something that I carried with me every single day I was in office. And I was also guided by a desire to prevent those kinds of crimes, to minimize the chances that they would occur in the future. And that means we can't make policy based on fear or sound bites. We can't make policy um, in ways that ignores a wealth of data, of, of empirical evidence. We need data-driven policies. And that's exactly what we implemented. That's why we ended bail. That's why we expanded diversion programs. That's why we wanted to make sure people who are drug addicted could get access to treatment and not simply cycle in and out of jail and get dumped back on the streets worse off than they were before. Um, those kinds of policies did, in fact, contribute to reducing crime by 20% in San Francisco during my tenure. They have been well-documented in places as far away as Texas and um, Chicago and Boston and, and beyond across the world um, to actually reduce crime when implemented successfully. And, and I want to be clear, this does not mean that you eliminate all crime. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have murders or rapes or robberies in jurisdictions where you're beginning the difficult process of building out alternatives to incarceration. You're going to have those crimes. And let's be clear, the powers that be, the police unions, their apologists in the mainstream media and their Republican allies are going to exploit every single crime. Shoplifting from Walgreens, a shooting in a black neighborhood, a stabbing of an elder uh, Asian grandmother. They're going to exploit every one of those crimes and blame reform for crimes that we know occurred before reforms, that occur in jurisdictions where they're not implementing any reforms. And in jurisdictions, you know, let's look at Sacramento, where we have one of the toughest on crime prosecutors in the country, proud of her, her history of sending juveniles to prison for life, of seeking the death penalty. There was a mass shooting in Sacramento a few months ago. Nobody blamed her policies for that mass shooting. If that had happened in San Francisco or in Boston or in Chicago or in Philadelphia, you better believe those same police unions would be leaping all over themselves to suggest dishonestly and without a shred of evidence that reforms or soft on crime prosecutors are why that shooting occurred. Right. They also never show, I mean, it's also hard to show, look at this person who did not commit a crime, who was released via this program or this decarceral program. No one's like, look at this person who was reunited with their family. Look at this person who was able to keep their job. It's not, you know. Yeah, success stories, you know, there's the old saying in the media, if it bleeds, it leads. And, and some of that's about what gets clicks, right? And also it's like, if there's a shooting and it's on video, because everything's on video these days, 
you know, that video is going to get a lot of clicks on social media. But if there's not a shooting, there's not a video to show. It's just a boring, it's a boring sidewalk that you're looking at, right? It's cars driving by, it's people walking in the park. And so one of the challenges that we had in San Francisco, and that I think the broader reform movement has across the country, is when you're doing work that actually reduces crime. I'll give you one concrete example. We filed a, a groundbreaking lawsuit against the three companies that are responsible for manufacturing ghost guns in the state of California. These are guns that are designed to be used in crimes. No serial numbers, untraceable, shipped over the internet, um, assembled in your home with, with tools in 20 to 25 minutes. Um, these are these are weapons that are being used in an increasing number of murders and shootings and robberies across the state of California. When my office said, we're not going to just wait for more crimes to be committed. We're going to go after the source, the root of the problem. We're going to sue these companies. Nobody did a big uh, story about all the crimes we prevented, right? You, you, you can't tell that story easily. And so that's the kind of work, the proactive work that we really need prosecutors to be doing to prevent crime, to make our community safer. And we need the public to understand and we need the media to report on the fact that it is not going to make us safer to simply punish people after a harm has occurred, after a crime has been committed. Going back to the people who are behind your recall, the biggest funder, right, of the recall was Neighbors for a Better San Francisco PAC. Right. And yeah. And, and their biggest individual donor was William Oberndorf, who we talked about earlier. Exactly. And if you go to their website, there's not like a single name listed. No one's there. No, you don't know who they are, what they're about. You've got to really dig in the weeds to find out who their donors are. By the way, Neighbors for a Better San Francisco is not actually based in San Francisco. They're based in a different county. Uh, this is the same name of the nonprofit that paid Brooke Jenkins like 150 grand in six months to volunteer for the recall. Um, and, you know, they raised money from Republicans across the country. Um, sure, they had some Democratic donors, for sure. Uh, but, you know, this is really, it's really problematic to see politics being shaped uh, by fear and by, by dishonesty rather than by evidence uh, or free competition of ideas. They didn't put forward a single idea. You look at the website uh, that they built to attack me, there's no policy proposal, not a single alternative proposal to address real problems the city's facing. Um, and sadly, that's a playbook we're seeing across the country when it comes to Republicans um, and even conservative Democrats attacking the criminal justice reform movement. Can you talk about your parents, their story and how it shaped you and led you to become a DA? Well, my parents were uh, members of SDS, Students for Democratic Society. They went on to um, be active members of the Weather Underground. And in 1981, when I was about a year old, they dropped me off at a babysitter and they never came back to get me. Um, while I was playing that day, they were driving a getaway car, a switch car in an armed robbery that left two police officers and a security guard dead. My parents weren't armed. They didn't personally hurt anybody, but they were knowingly involved in an armed robbery and it resulted in, in three murders. Um, I don't remember their arrest. I don't remember, you know, my friends or grandparents picking me up from the babysitter that day. I don't remember when my mom, um, you know, received her sentence of 20 years to life. I don't remember when my dad received a 75 year to life sentence. My earliest memories as a child, they're waiting in lines at prison gates to be able to see my parents, just to be able to give them a hug. And I remember noticing before I understood 
anything about politics. I remember noticing that the lines at those prison gates were mostly black and brown women and children. I remember seeing through years, now decades, of lived experience with the criminal justice system that this system was not achieving any legitimate goals. It was not rehabilitating people who'd committed crimes. It was not um, investing meaningfully in victims or victim services or supports. And it was bankrupting local governments of the resources needed to build safe and vibrant communities. And so I wanted to dedicate my life and my work to fighting against that system, a system that's become known as mass incarceration because the United States leads the world in locking people up. And so when I went to law school, I became a, a public defender. I wanted to fight to prevent people from going into prison. Uh, and I realized after years of doing that work that it wasn't enough to fight the system one case at a time, that we needed system change. Uh, and of course, it was around that time that from coast to coast, people like Larry Krasner and Rachel Rollins and Kim Fox were running for office on platforms that were explicitly decarceral, that were based on using the power of the DA's office to enforce laws equally, not just to exacerbate and amplify racial disparities. Um, I was inspired. I was inspired by their work, by the opportunity for change. Uh, and so in 2019, I decided to run for office and I decided to be extremely honest and detailed in my campaign promises, exactly what we were going to do, why we were going to do it. And voters elected me. They elected me to do exactly the things that we did in 2020 and 2021, and the beginning of 2022. Um, and in June, I was recalled. Um, you know, I think my parents experienced both fighting for social change, fighting in support of the civil rights movement also making devastating mistakes and in involving themselves in violent, tragic, violent crime taught me a lot of lessons. And a lifetime of visiting prisons taught me lessons that I applied every single day about what works and what doesn't work, about the risks and the costs, and about the real need, uh, unmet need, to invest in supporting survivors of crime in ways that doesn't simply equate length of sentence or how many pounds of flesh with the amount of justice that we're meeting out. And um, there, your 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 brother uh, Zay Dorn just released a I thought excellent podcast called Mother Country Radicals, which I highly recommend. Katie, I mean, it, it, did he did like did he give you a, a kickback for plugging his podcast? No, or what's, no, no like he a, hasn't even come on the show or anything. But uh, uh, we, gotta, we should try, we should yeah, arrange that. I like the pod. I like the pod too. Won an award at Tribeca. It's great. Yeah, it was uh, it was really really excellent and highly recommend it. But can you tell people, because your mother died in May after serving 23 years, can you just share a little bit about her life, what she did once she was in jail? Because that's a story that's, I mean, it's a story in itself. Yeah, you know, 22 years, 23 years of prison, I mean, it's a huge amount of time to serve. And she's interviewed on my brother's pod, as you mentioned, she talks about some of her work. They did those interviews, obviously, in the months before she died. Um that's a, it's a serious amount of time. It's a lifetime to many people and some wouldn't have survived it. Others survive it, but they do it just sort of by putting their head down and, and serving their time one day after another. My mom decided to build a community, to be part of a community, to thrive as a member of a community. Um, you know, she did amazing work organizing and educating around HIV AIDS at a time when 20% of women going into New York state prison were HIV positive. I mean, it's crazy to think, but in the late eighties, early nineties, 
women going into prison, 20% were HIV positive and they didn't know anything about the, the disease. Um, she also um, learned Spanish while she was in prison so that she could teach literacy to others, including non-English speakers. She um, earned her master's degree. She was the first woman in the history of the state of New York to earn her master's degree while in prison. Um, she got really involved in writing, publishing writing, including writing, expressing her remorse for her role in the crime while um, in prison. Um, and she also uh, was engaged in parenting programs, uh, leading a group called Teen Time that helped facilitate bonds between mothers in prison and their teenage children in the community in which she applied some of the lessons she learned by uh, trying to ensure she was present and active and supportive and loving in my life. Those are just a few of the many, many things that she did on top of being an amazing mother, uh, despite the distance that her incarceration created. What kind of difference does it make? I mean, your father was released, so you were able to be with your mother when she died. I heard you very movingly talk about this on Democracy Now!, how you listened to the same Nina Simone album when she was dying that, you're, that they had listened to when you were being born. Can you talk about the difference it makes? I mean, I, I'm not sure that it's something a lot of people think about. People think about the death penalty, but the, the, the idea of sentencing people to life in jail, what that does to losing someone who's inside, what that does not to, just to that person, but to the family. You know, um, I think there's this sense in the way that we talk about imposing criminal punishments and sentences that people who commit crimes and cause harm, even serious harm, there's often a sense that they're, that dehumanizes them and that disconnects them from a family and from a community. But, you know, everybody who goes to prison has a family one way or another, right? They have a mother, they have a father. Most of them have brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts, and the majority have kids. And when we send people to prison in this country on any given day, we have well over 2 million people in prison. There are more children with an incarcerated parent than there are people in prison. And I'm not saying that being a parent gives you a free pass to commit robbery or rape. Absolutely not. But it does mean we need to find ways to think longer term, bigger picture about the harm that incarceration also causes and about ways to, to hold people who cause harm accountable that don't destroy their families and communities, that don't create an intergenerational cycle of incarceration the way that, sadly, I saw far, far too many of the children who I grew up playing in our parents' prison visiting rooms with end up themselves incarcerated. We've got to break that cycle. That's why one of my first policies, the very first that I announced after taking office, was the creation of a primary caregiver diversion program, because we as a community are safer when we find ways for nonviolent offenders to be at home taking care of their kids rather than in a jail cell racking up new criminal convictions. And how is your father and how is his, because he was um, freed, he was released later, more recently. How is he integrating, reintegrating? You know, my dad got out in early November, so it's been less than a year. My mother and I were there to meet him. Um, it's hard to describe the overwhelming uh, emotions that, that his release brought with it. I mean, I, I had spent my entire life thinking he was going to die in prison. He had a 75-year minimum sentence. He, he wasn't supposed to get out. And as he got older and was in his late 70s and people in his prison were dying of COVID, I just had this, this feeling that he might not make it, um, that he probably wouldn't make it. 
So the day he got out was 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 tremendous for our family. And, and of course, at the same time, I, I am aware that there are families out there who are still not whole, who are still grieving the loss of their loved ones because of the crime that my parents were involved in. Um, and, and we want to always be mindful of, of that harm and that ongoing harm that those families are, are suffering and also recognize that nothing can bring their loved ones back. And, and to be able to you know, support my father in his final years, to be able to have him come and, and babysit for my son um, so my wife and I can get errands and, and chores done around the house, uh, it's, it's, it's invaluable. Um, and it's a big adjustment. I think I'm learning from his, from his reentry, I'm learning just how poor a job we do as a country in reintegrating people from prison and, and, and giving them identification and, and helping them set up a bank account or, or find a way to, to get a job or uh, to be able to get access to therapy if, if they need help or social workers or, or healthcare. Basic things um, that are often daunting, insurmountable tasks for people coming home from prison. And they're just on their own in most cases. So it's been a big adjustment. It's required a lot of community and family support. Um, and my dad's someone who is highly educated, doesn't have substance use issues, doesn't have anger management issues, has a big community. Most people getting home from prison don't have all those things. We have got to invest. We've got to build infrastructure to make reentry successful. And again, even if you don't care about the people coming home from prison, even if you don't care about their families, public safety requires that we not have a revolving door. Public safety requires that when people get out of prison, no matter what they're getting out for, whether it's, it's, it's murder, which is a very, I see one of the chats, it's a very, very tiny fraction of what people are being arrested for, um, you know, far more common or lower level offenses. But regardless of what you're getting out of custody for, if we as a society don't want you to commit another crime, if we don't want to have more crime and more violence, we need to make sure that there's a place for you to go when you get out. A roof over your head, access to job training while you're inca incarcerated, and access to jobs when you get released so you can earn a living. If we don't do that, um, we're setting ourselves up for failure and we're, we're really undermining the, the kind of safety that we all deserve to have in our communities. What was your parents' take on this and what advice did they give you when you were going through the recall? Well, I think my parents were, you know, nervous about me running in the first place. You know, I, I have vivid memories of conversations with all four of my parents, biological and adoptive parents, when I made the decision to run. And, you know, of course, it's a big decision for my family, for my wife, for, for all of us in terms of the media scrutiny and the fundraising and the really intense uh, work requirements that, that come with public office, the sacrifices on so many fronts. Um, and the recall was, um, you know, was more of that. Um, it was more sacrifice. It was more attacks. Uh, it was a lot more work. Um, that was a distraction from the work I was elected to do. You know, I think that the best advice I got from family was to make sure that no matter what happened in the recall or in any individual election, that I could look back in five or 10 years and be proud of the work that we'd accomplished um, to make decisions that were principled, um, to be flexible enough to bend and, and respond to the needs of the community and what we were hearing from the community, and also to be principled enough that we wouldn't break or look back and, and feel like we'd sold out. And lastly, two, two questions. What's next for you? And also, what advice do you have for other um, reformers across the country in the trenches? What words of warning or 
or hope? Well, I'm definitely optimistic about the criminal justice reform movement. And, you know, I'm committed to finding ways to continue to support that movement and the broader reforms uh, that it's pushing. Uh, I haven't decided specifically what, you know, what job I'll take. I have a lot of really exciting offers. And the most important thing to me in the next couple of months is is being there for my son and for my wife and for my family. Um, you know, as far as uh, advice, I would say, you know, be really intentional about your communications. You need to make sure the public understands what you're doing. Um, and you need to be really clear if you're taking on the powers that be the way we did, the, the police unions, the bail industry, the, you know, corrupt status quo politicians. You need to be really clear that that's what you're doing uh, and that when you come after them, they're going to come after you. Um, and I think, you know, you've got to remember from day one, you know, just because you, you, you're you in office and you've won your race doesn't mean that that you stop the really intense community organizing work of campaign life. You've got to continue to build community. You've got to continue the public education work. Um, and you've got to be principled no matter what they throw at you. Hmm. Well, anything else that you want to make sure that you tell people? Um, people yeah, check them? out my brother's podcast. Um, follow me on Twitter. Um, check out Katie. You know, you're already all here, but keep checking out Katie. Katie and I um, always have fun conversations when we get together, and I hope we can do it again soon. Yeah, definitely. And again, so sorry about your mother, but so glad that you were able to spend time with her and that she was able to meet her grandson and that uh, she was able to have your father there. It meant a lot to be able to be by her side. And she she lived long enough to meet her grandson, uh, be the first person to welcome him home from the hospital. She lived long enough to be there to greet my father when he was released and to help fight to get him out uh, and, and really help him make his adjustment in those first few months. And it's one of those things where it's a, it's a huge loss. It's, it's sad. Uh, and also, she lived a full life. It's not a tragedy. She, she packed it in and she, she worked miracles. Thank you so much. And thanks for all you've done. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. <laughs>